Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity once again to gather as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for the inspired Word of God, the completed canon, Father, for it is the very bread of life. Father, thank you for sending your Son to make a day like this a reality giving us eternal life forevermore. Thank you for keeping us here after salvation so that we might spread this wonderful news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray especially for those still lost in this world, for there are many, as your Holy Scripture states, the road, the gate is narrow, that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity for however long you decide to keep us here on this earth. We thank you for this opportunity to complete the great commission we've been given. Father, again, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, fantastic lesson set before us, continuation, part 20 of why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. Well, in context, we're just about back to this primary course of study, why are the apostles so encouraging? We've just had a few points the spirits wanted to pad our souls with while emerging from the so-called mind shaft. Been a wonderful journey that's included several related, though separately important topics over the past couple of months. But we are now going to grab hold of some more encouragement from the apostles. With that said, here's the final list of things the Spirit wants us to grab hold of before we forge new ground. For starters, on Thursday, we began with a triplet of very important questions based on the following scripture up here on the board, <clears throat> Hebrews 6, 11 to 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith, and that was our pivot point on Thursday evening, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So up here on the board, we were given this on Thursday, through faith, could there be a larger statement regarding our lives? Could there be a more potent remedy to our ailments? And is there a greater ointment for our disciplinary wounds? Could there be a greater statement or a larger statement regarding our lives than through faith? The answer is no. And this is what Scripture tells us. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. For starters, if we're humbled, if we're humble. We have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 gives us very clearly this statement of fact. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Same phrase. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Through faith. And then we are also sanctified experientially. Through faith. Romans 12.3 part B says plainly that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So we begin this journey 
through faith, and we continue this journey through faith. But faith is only given to the humble. So to pull this first topic together, Paul wrote about through faith being contiguous for every form of deliverance given by grace from the Lord. As I've taught you in the past, we are not just saved one time, we are saved daily. Another word for being saved is delivered. Another word for salvation is deliverance. We are delivered from the throes of spiritual death. Not just at salvation, but every day we're kept alive by grace, again, through faith. So Paul wrote about through faith being contiguous for every form of deliverance given by grace from the Lord. Galatians 3.3 in the New Living Translation reads this, How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? In other words, through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, you were saved. That's how you start this journey. Why would you change channels? <laughs> it's like, oh my word, it's the most beautiful song I've ever heard in my life. Why would you change channels? And that's what Paul was saying. What are you doing? Who's bewitched you? You started so well. What's going on? And some of you can look in the mirror. I do from time to time. And say, what are you doing? You're going to try to go at this alone now? You moron. That's just me. So you don't have to nod your head and go, yeah. <laughs> the idea was that you were pretending to be in front of your mirror. For whatever reason, we humans, let's think about this. It's true. For whatever reason, it's not important that we cite all of them. We humans just love to take God's grace up to a certain point and then say, I'll take it from here. We love doing that. It's tragic, but we love it. Some of us embody this false sense of humility by saying stupid things like, well, God's busy working on other people's problems. So I won't bother him with this menial one I've got right here. That's dumb. I'll just perfect myself from here on out on my own. We say stupid things like that. Maybe I'm the, am I the only idiot that said stuff like that? I'm not going to pray on that because it's so little. I mean, I'll just deal with it myself. Am I the only idiot? No. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. You look lovely today. See, this is what happens. If you back me up, I compliment you. <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> we do these things. I'll just perfect myself on my own from here on out. And that is just about the dumbest internal conversation any believer could have with themselves. Literally. The dumbest internal conversation you could ever have. If you're saved, uh, the last thing you want to do is pretend that you have the ability to deliver yourself in time even. Through faith. The reason the Bible frequently uses the concept, if not the direct phrase, through faith is because that it is exactly how we are sanctified, whether positionally or experientially. That's how it works. You're not sanctified other than by grace through faith. So since faith is a grace gift that cannot be planned, manufactured, or empowered by man on his own. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians 3. You started by the Spirit, now you're going to abandon Him? His power? Since faith is a grace gift that cannot be planned, manufactured, or empowered by man on his own, this is precisely why Jesus taught the original twelve to think about grace, faith, and sanctification the right way. It would have been impossible for them to succeed in enlarging the early church had they not understood these fundamental principles. 
So as we ended last Sunday and Thursday, by grace they were prepared. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. Do not, I just had a good conversation uh, with my mom before anyone else was here other than DJ about my grandma. And um, that is our great work. Do not be deceived and, you know, getting caught up with any of the, um, I like to call it white noise and it doesn't diminish anyone's pain or suffering or what people might be going through. But let's just keep our eyes on the prize. Let's keep our eyes on the things above. Sounds like Colossians 3. Let's keep our eyes on the things above so that we understand and we don't get caught up or snagged into thinking that all this white noise is even important in the grand scheme of things. The only thing that's important, and I love my grandmother, the only thing that's important is that she's saved. I mean, if it takes a whole heck of a lot of pain for her to be saved, maybe she's that arrogant. I don't know. But if that's what God needs to do in her life, then so be it. Then I'm all for it. The great work for any believer, though, is to spread the gospel. Do not lose sight of that. We all need to be literally changed by grace through faith in order to accomplish this good work. Jesus has left His precious salvation ministry to His sheep to carry on. That's where we left off this past week, Sunday and Thursday, pressing on now with the final elements of getting back into the saddle of our primary course of study. I'm going to do the best I can. This is just like Thursday. I said it on Thursday. I'll say it this morning. There's a lot of moving parts. And so I'm doing the best I can to teach and bring these things together and sort of knit it all together. But um, if you haven't been following along or if you're new, if you're new, no problem. If it's the first time here, no problem. But if, you, if you're a member and you haven't been following along and some of this is more difficult than it ought to be, well, you only have yourself to blame. Just reflecting on where we're headed, we left our studies two months ago thinking about the commission on the apostles' lives in the early church. What was it like? They were given this unbelievable commission. Go and evangelize the world. Go spread the gospel. These were men that had no idea how to lead a church. Never mind the church of Christ. Just think about that. That's what was given to them as a commission. They didn't even know how to lead. They weren't church leaders. And Christ says, I need you to build the church. So this is something from our lessons back in April. Leaders are made, not born. Do not buy the lie that leaders are born. That's a silly statement from the world. Leaders are made, not born. Like every leader worth their salt, they had to be trained up. Every leader requires training, beginning with the humility required to follow, regardless of personality. If you're not a good follower, you'll never be a good leader. Let me put it that way. Leaders are made, not born. Any leader worth their salt has had to be trained up. The apostles were no different. The Bible teaches us the following through the apostles. Again, leaders are made, not born. Man is born depraved, self-absorbed, egocentric, controlling, jealous, weak, etc. Is that, are those the characteristics you want to work under at work, let's say? Do you want that as a boss, anybody? That's the flesh. Depraved self-absorbed, egocentric, controlling, jealous, weak, and the list goes on. That's how we're all born. While he may have apparent requisite gifts, such as intellect, persuasiveness, confidence, etc., without the constitution of a leader, he is merely a counterfeit. True leaders are rare because most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. Most people want to short-circuit the way there. They don't want to take and bear patience in life in time while God, by grace through faith, looks for one thing. What is it? Humility. 
So lead, true leaders are rare. There's a lot of people who seize leadership positions, but that doesn't make anyone a leader. True leaders are rare because most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. They lack the patience and the willingness to surrender to authority. Something that comes with humility. I'd argue the following. One of the greatest shortcom shortcomings of wannabe leaders is that they fail to see that the issue is not seizing control, but rather seizing servitude. If you want to lead, if you want to be a true leader, what did Christ say? You're going to be a servant. Who's the greatest? The servant. Not the one who seizes control through personality or intellect or manipulative skills that they might have been born with. For many people, those are the, um, quote, challenges that they must overcome in order to become true leaders. One of the greatest shortcomings of wannabe leaders is that they fail to see that the issue is not seizing control, but rather seizing servitude. Every good leader serves another, and so on. Unless you're Jesus Christ, you're not the head of the pack, which means that you fall somewhere in the chain of command, which means that even if you're a leader, you are a follower because you're serving some other greater cause, so to speak. See, that's the problem with so-called leaders. They feel, they sense that seizing control is the end game, and that's all wrong. An easy way of identifying a counterfeit leader is that they lack the constitution for the job. On the constitution of a leader, think about it. Man is born antagonistic towards God. He's born this way. A true leader must first be a true follower. Self-promoters lack the constitution for the job. The word demands testing, proof of ability, before a man ought to be ready for promotion. Arrogance never waits. Humility does. Arrogance never waits. That's the problem. But I want to be a leader now. I want to stand behind the pulpit now. I want to go on the street corner now. I want to be uh, the manager at my office now. I want to be a, a, a father now. I want to be a husband now. But you're not ready. You're not ready for any of that stuff. You don't even barely know who Christ is. How do you think you're ready for any of that stuff? Well, if you won't give it to me, I'll just take it. And Satan's like, great, I got just the, just the platter for you. Choose your poison. The word demands testing, proof of ability, before a man ought to be ready for promotion. Arrogance never waits, humility does. Luke 2.52, 1 Samuel 17, 33-37, Galatians 1, 15-18, 1 Timothy 3, 2-7, Titus 1, 7-11. For example, that means there's no, there's no shortage of backing scripturally for the point on the board. On the topic of patience and sanctification, etc., reflect for a moment. <clears throat> I was thinking about this, and this is your shepherd speaking to you. Uh, just some feedback on how you go about even reading the Bible. It may seem, because we are able to, and I'm talking about specifically on the idea of patience. If we're going to, in other words, if we're going to relate to these apostles, and one of the keys is patience, well, let's, rela let's relate to it rightly when we read our Bibles it may seem because we are able to read over vast expanses of the life and times of the apostles, you know, in like one sitting. You might read the book of Acts and be like, I just read five chapters and it went like through, you don't even know how many years it took. But in, in your world, it was condensed because you read it so quickly. Oh, well, he was doing this and then right then, he, like the next chapter, he was doing this and then the next chapter he was doing this. Yeah, but there was years between those things. And we get, we forget. So because we were able to read over vast expanses of the life and times of the apostles, that things happen quickly in the lives of the apostles, we make this mistake of thinking that things happen as quickly as we were able to read them. But if you read the Bible in context, you know that this is simply not true. 
the original apostles didn't even follow Jesus right away. In fact, after meeting him, some of them went back to working their jobs. And it wasn't until a little later that Jesus said, follow me. And then they did. Think about Paul, too. He spent three years being personally prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ before he began his public ministry. Three years under the watchful eye of Christ himself. Even Jesus spent 30 years learning and growing before he was called out by his father to public ministry the way we read about in the Bible. And his own family took a while to believe in him too. The point is that we mustn't misappropriate Scripture by artificially condensing time based on the short amount of time it takes us to simply read of the apostolic lives. We mustn't condense. We mustn't artificially reduce. Because if we do that, when we think about patience, the concept of patience is diminished because we think that it wasn't that long. But it was really long. Think of Abraham, Sarah. There's a lot of instances where long periods of time took place. And if you're that person, that means there's an awful lot of what? Patience and humility. If we do the wrong thing, we miss out on relating to one of the key elements of encouragement in Holy Scripture regarding the apostles too, which is patience. Patience. But you see, they had to be taught patience. Just like you have to be taught patience. The flesh is not very patient, is it? The flesh is the little child who says, uh, that little one-year-old has a piece of candy and I want it. And I'm not waiting for mommy to give me mine, so I'm just going to take his. That's the unadulterated flesh, is it not? I want it, I take it. Patience? How do you even spell that? I don't care. I want my candy. Right? That's you. Patience. <laughs> so, this makes perfect sense. The apostles were taught patience. Why? Because they needed it. The good, or a good portion of humility is patience. Think about that. You might dwell on that today. A good portion of humility is patience. Perseverance as one of the uh, key fruits of believers is something that is wrought alongside of patience. That seems to be um, a good portion of any counsel that I give to anyone that reaches out to me. So often it's be patient. Take your time. Just settle down and take your time. Jesus taught his apostles to be patient and wait on God's timing for everything. And we have ample examples in Scripture. I just gave you some. I mean, some people waited 40 years before the next step. 40 years. Some of you are like, it's been 40 seconds. I just had this revelation in my soul. Oh my God, it's an epiphany. It's been 40 seconds. We're running around the parking lot doing cartwheels. They're building signs. They're, I don't know. What do you guys do? Crazy people. You know what I'm saying? Settle down. As we'll continue to see, especially with Peter, patience had to be developed in the apostles. I know I can certainly relate to this. And some of you are laughing, so it must be common. I sometimes say to God, you know, uh, can't you just make things happen a little sooner than later in my soul? I mean, and then I get into the ridiculousness. I mean, it'd make both of our lives easier, wouldn't it? Seriously? <laughs> it's laughable. More accurately, it's insulting try to laugh it off, but frankly, it's insulting. It's insulting to God. Perspective is everything, especially regarding patience. The value of perspective 
Do not worry. And these are all points of review. Do not worry about what you don't understand yet. This is a huge principle, especially for newer believers. Do not worry about what you don't understand yet. Focus on those things that the Lord has revealed through His Spirit in you. Consider how very far the grace of God has already delivered you. How about that? Focus on the good things. Todd and I, DJ and I were talking about this before class. You know, as ugly as the world is, it's still very beautiful. Honestly, it's, there's still so much beauty in this world. But what does the Word of God say? Seek and you shall find. Seek it. Go look for it. Go find it. Maybe it's right in front of you. Maybe it's in the mirror. It's not all ugly when you look in the mirror. There are good things that he's done in you. I, and if you forget, I will just as quickly tell each one of you, I know all of you, pretty much by name, save a couple of people, that the things that I've seen him do in your life that are beautiful. From my perspective, and I'm just an outsider looking in, don't forget the good things. Remember where you came from and be grateful always. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. So that takes us back to where we left off pretty much in April of this year with why the apostles so encouraging by grace they were prepared. That was part 18. I'm going to slow our pace now and continue investigating Holy Scripture on this topic with you. In order for our own education to be successful, this is the beauty of the inspired Word of God, 2,000 years later, the Spirit has given us a framework to work through up here on the board. And so this has been the familiar framework. If you haven't been here for the first 19 lessons, this is what we've been using as a framework. Jesus Christ sent the apostles out on this great commission to spread the gospel and to build up the early church. So Jesus called them. We went through most of that um, in the first part of the series, Jesus trained them. We've been on this topic for the remainder of the time so far, both academically and on-the-job training. That's OJT. Jesus sent them out, and that was the final thing that we'll get to. So we've been pondering this second bullet that Jesus trained them up. By grace, they were prepared, right? We've been pondering this second bullet on the board for some time. So let's pick up where we left off two months ago and then find our next subtopic, at least get it in our, uh, in our radar. Go to John 6.53. John 6.53. So I'm going to slow down now. All of that was review. John 6.53. John 6, 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and will, I will raise him up on the last day. 6.55 For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, now here's where you have to start concentrating, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, quote, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit 
and our life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. If you look at the original language there, it means they departed for good. There was a finality there, which means they were apostates. Verse 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? So here's the challenge. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So there's a lot going on in this passage. We'll slow down here. First, what do we see in this passage? Well, for starters, Jesus establishes what true sustenance looks like. Go to verse 55. What does he say true sustenance looks like in the first place? For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So Jesus establishes what true sustenance looks like in the first place. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Hold your thumb there. Go to Matthew 4, verse 3. Matthew 4, verse 3. What about true sustenance? Is it that teriyaki steak you're going to grill today? What is it? Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus was hungry, remember. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why? Because that's where true sustenance is, in the word of God. All right, go back to verse 55. John 6, 55. He says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Up here on the board, on this topic of true sustenance then, the bread of life that we read about in John 6 is a believer's true source of energy and life. Even if we die physically, we keep eternal life, the source of which is Jesus Christ himself. John 1.4 Again, true sustenance is the very bread of life. It is our true source of energy and life. Even if we die physically, we keep eternal life, the source of which is Jesus Christ himself. Up here on the board, John 1.4 states, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the very wellspring of life itself. He is, this is why he calls himself the bread of life, the very sustenance for us. These are among the most elusive statements of all to unbelievers. And remember the context in John 6. Who can understand such things? And then many of them withdrew. So these are among the most elusive statements of all to unbelievers, which is something we just noted in John 6, where the so-called disciples, many as it turned out were unbelievers, couldn't wrap their arms around. That's the problem. This is yet another way that we might identify falsely professing Christians among us. They cannot accept the things of God because they are limited by their human faculties, which aren't even able to comprehend such spiritual realities. That's the problem. Who can believe such things? Have you ever had a conversation, you're trying to give someone the gospel, they say, who can believe such things? Seriously, how can that possibly be? Why is that? They don't either want to hear it or they can't understand it. Up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the New Living. 
But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. It's that simple. So the first point the Spirit's giving us is that the apostles stood out among their peers because many of their peers, as we're reading, were unable to comprehend spiritual things, being unsaved. That's why they left. They said, all right, this is getting over our heads now. You know, we like the miracles and we like the free food, but this is like... And so they left. And then Jesus said, you're going to leave me too? Where else are we going to go? That's the distinction between a professing unbeliever and an actual true believer. These guys persevere. These guys take off. So the apostles were there and were among the group of disciples. Do not be deceived in thinking every time you see the word disciple in Scripture that it means a believer, because it doesn't. We just saw that in Scripture. Go to John 6.60. There were disciples that were actually unbelievers. John 6.60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And being him... This is a rhetorical question, a la 1 Corinthians 2.14. He already knew. He goes, does this cause you to stumble? Gee, I wonder why. Up here on the board, does this cause you to stumble? Jesus asked a rhetorical question that he knew the unbelieving, quote, disciples would be forced to answer yes in their hearts. Yeah, it does make me stumble. He later on makes a direct statement but there are some of you who do not believe. So it makes total sense. Why would you stumble? Because you're not a believer. John 6, 64 said that. Let's consider the overall context of the scene we have before us in Holy Scripture. Jesus is teaching some of the most... Mag- Think about this. Just put this into perspective. Step back. John 6, what's going on? He's teaching some of the most magnificent truths found in the Bible. These are incredible. I am the bread of life. I am the very sustenance. I'm your food and drink. Me. These are stupend. These are magnificent. These are, you can't, I can't teach them. I, can't, I can only restate them. These are supernatural things that just transcend any human rationale we could possibly conjure up. And only a spiritual person with the faculties, a person who's saved, is ever going to understand them. So Jesus is teaching some of the most magnificent truths found in the Bible, that he is the very sustenance of life itself, the very light of men. And he knows full well that these statements far outstrip human faculties, and must be received by grace through faith, a la our opening topic this morning. By grace through faith. As we've learned in the past, not every so-called disciple of Jesus Christ, that is to say contemporarily, not every Christian today is a true believer. Not every Christian today is a true believer. There are lots of people in churches across our great country that are in Christian churches as I speak. And you know what? They're not even saved. False disciples. Some people follow Jesus because he is the, let's just call it the best option under scrutiny of human rationale. I like this Jesus guy. I like him. He sounds like a loving cool guy. Sounds like he was giving and merciful and he bounced babies on his knees. And, you know, he sounds like a cool, a swell guy to me. He sounds better than that Buddha guy with the belly who sits there Indian style and I got to rub him. You know, I just like Jesus better. And the people in the, the people in the church I go to, they're nicer than the people in this other kind of religion. So Jesus becomes like the best option. 
under human rationale. That's a false disciple. So some people follow Jesus because he's the, quote, best option under scrutiny of human rationale. This does not constitute salvation. Just because you follow Jesus for a while doesn't mean you're saved. Didn't we just learn that? Yeah. That's what a disciple means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn under you. That's what a disciple means. I'm going to be under the discipline of your teaching. doesn't mean you believe it. I'm just going to be there for a while. Human rationale has nothing to do with God's grace. In fact, it's an obstacle. It's, the, it's, it's literally the, the undoing of faith. How do we start off? Through faith, right? Human rationale mixes with, with through faith. It don't work. It's leaven, and leaven is the whole lump. So human rationale has nothing to do with God's grace. In fact, it's an obstacle. So when Jesus asked, uh, you know, what about you? What we have in context is the presence of human rationale in man. And these individuals asked, who can listen to it? What's present? Human rationale. What was the problem when they said, who can listen to it? These are difficult statements. Who can listen to it? What was actually percolating up in the conversation? Human rationale. What do you mean you're the bread of... What are you talking about? You notice that not all of his disciples asked this question, just many, in verse 60. This is the same thing we see in churches even today. People asking all the wrong questions because the questions are generated from the human flesh. People ask all the wrong questions because the questions are generated from the human flesh. And just as a side note, this is one of the reasons I sent you all those two articles in Romans 2 from Gleason Archer this past week. It was to challenge your own thinking on these topics of so-called unevangelized persons and infant death. One must always be on guard against the presence of of human rationale. Oh, I know what you'd like to think about this or that situation. I know what you'd like to think. I know what I would like to think. But you know what? If it's actually not in the Bible, you don't get to think that way. That's the problem. And you don't get to read over someone's, you know, work like that and go, poo-poo. I don't like it. Poo-poo. I read it once. I'm just going to start reading this devotional here instead from some chick. Because I like it better. It makes me feel good on the inside. But I don't want to actually challenge, I don't want to actually have my soul challenged because this would make me an emotional basket case. I can't cling to things that aren't even real anymore. But I like this so much better. Why did everybody stop laughing when I mentioned the devotional? You guys all have that on the back of your toilet? Ho hum. <laughs> oh, I feel so good. But then when you're challenged, when your doctrines are challenged scripturally and you poo-poo them, shame on you. Shame on you. We must always ask ourselves whether our confusion regarding this or that doctrine in Holy Scripture is either plain ignorance, which is normal. It's okay. If you're ignorant on a topic, you just never studied it, you you know, you've you're new to the faith, you haven't gotten that scripture yet, that's cool. Or, it's from the flesh, which is a form of evil. Well, I don't like that one. But what you believe actually isn't in the Bible. So? But the Bible actually says something contrary. So? Do you ever wonder why you're still miserable? You know why you lack freedom? Because you're not humble. You want to believe in a God that doesn't exist. Back to the context of this scene we have unfolding in John 6. We have the apostles standing among a larger group of so-called disciples. So here's our scene. The apostles are there. And after explaining the spiritual reality of spiritual sustenance and life, many, so says Scripture, have stumbled over Jesus' words. Huh. And as we find out, these are the same folks who Jesus calls out directly as unbelievers. So 
the practical side of this for this morning's lesson is that there are unbelievers among us. Don't ever assume that anyone who calls themselves a, quote, Christian is a true believer. Don't ever assume that. You don't have the right to say either way to start for starters, fundamentally. But the point the Spirit's making is that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians that aren't even believers. Yeah, I like that Jesus guy. He suits me. I get less flack from my family because the rest of the family is Christians. And so I figure I'll just call myself a Christian too. I'll go to church once in a blue moon, you know, just so my family leaves me alone, this kind of a thing. That's not a disciple of Jesus, not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a phony. That's not even a true believer, most likely. But this is the point the Spirit's making. Jesus was never fooled by human interest in his person and works. So neither should we be. In keeping with our subject, given the apostles were standing among this group of so-called disciples, let us understand also that Jesus knew there were true believers in this group, not just unbelievers, including the apostles. Look at verse 60, John 6, 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And that's that rhetorical question. And up here on the board, from the Greek word skandalizo, we have stumble. <clears throat> it means to cause to stumble, cause to sin, cause to become indignant, shocked, or offended. Are you offended by this? What's the problem? Why are you offended? By my words. I'm the Messiah. Just think about that. You should never be offended by anything, he says. Strictly speaking, right? Why are you offended? What's the problem? The human flesh is always offended by the gospel truth. So concentrate. This is our last big point of concentration. What are the possible manifestations of this stumbling? In other words, why would the gospel ever make anyone stumble? It is the good news. That's what the gospel means. Good news. Why would it ever make anyone stumble? So what are the possible manifestations of this stumbling? Well, for starters, we have many, quote, Christians today inventing new Gospels. So they don't like what they hear in Holy Scripture, so they invent other Gospels. Well, I'm going to get to heaven without Jesus. No, you're not. But I'm still a Christian. You definitely are not. Oh, yeah, you can be, I'll let you keep the word Christian, but you're not a believer. Because unless Jesus was a stinking liar, you're out of whack. Because he said, no one gets to the Father but through me. And he's God, and Scripture says God does, never lies. So for starters, we have many Christians today inventing new Gospels. Some are completely void of Jesus Christ's own words. They like the idea of the cross and Christianity and, you know, some of the, you know, benevolence things of Christianity, but Jesus, they're, they're void of Jesus Christ's own words. Others are void of Christ altogether. Now, this is the one, my mom and I were talking about this. This is the one that freaks me out. Now, how do you say you're a Christian and then stumble? at Christ. Or how the heck do you do that? How do you take offense at Christ or his words and call yourself a Christian? Call yourself something else. Why would you call it a Christ, Christian, right? Christ, Christian? What the? So there are Christians out there that denounce Christ. It makes no sense. Do you see the likeness of those who call themselves disciples during this scene? They are one and the same type of person. That's what we're seeing. People following Jesus that aren't actually Jesus' own. Why? Miracles, food, I don't know, entertainment value, curiosity, the lesser of evils, uh, Jesus is a swell guy. I don't know, probably a whole host of reasons. So many in that scene and many in our own scenes in life are unsaved, even though they call themselves Christians. And that's a problem. 
Again, what precipitated that was this idea of stumbling. Jesus said, why are you stumbling? Why are you offended? The answer is that the human flesh is always offended by the gospel truth. Think about it. If the name, of, if the name Jesus or what he stated as truth makes a person stumble, just think about that. There's a problem, even if they call themselves a Christian. I've met Christians who say there are other ways than through Jesus to salvation. What? They say there are other ways to salvation than through Jesus, and they call themselves a Christian. How do you say that? You're calling, you're calling the man after the religion you cling to, whose name is in the, the name is the religion itself, a liar. Well, that doesn't even make sense, but that's people. Because they don't actually want the truth. Hold your thumb. Go to first John 4 1. First John 4 1. So there was there was definitely some of that going on in the early church. Maybe it wasn't so ridiculous as we see today. Because the term Christian didn't even come up until the early church, and it was derogatory when it first came out. First <clears throat> John 4 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So if you're supposedly a Christian and you say Jesus is not necessary or he's not God, or he's not what he says he is, then what the heck are you talking about? You're from another spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Again, if the name of Jesus, or the name Jesus, or what he stated as truth makes a person stumble, there is a huge problem, even if they call themselves a Christian. All right, go back to John 6.62. For example, the following words from Jesus would be offensive to an unbeliever even today. John 6.62, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Up here on the board, focus on that. The flesh profits nothing. Okay, you want it? This is all, I always get a kick out of this. This is a funny experiment. Everybody's been here. Everybody's clung to it. Everybody's come in contact with it. I don't know what the deal is. Okay, so your, your best buddy finds a new ice cream place. You both love ice cream. I mean, this place far outstrips any other ice cream place, right? So they're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Guys don't talk like that, but I'm trying to go halfway between girls and guys. Right? <laughs> I've just found this ice cream place. It's, unbe- it's, ama- it's unbelievable. And you go and you're like, that was, a- that was the best ice cream I've had in my whole life, right? And then like two days later, you're like, dude, I found this ice cream place. It's called such and such. Whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's where I just took you. That's my find. It's my find. What's the problem? They want creature credit. If you take away any form of creature credit, they have a problem with it. When the flesh profits nothing, all of a sudden, oh, no, no, no. This ain't happening right now. Oh, no. You understand what I'm getting at? Nobody's ever done that before? That's never happened? You guys are all liars. You're all liars. Everybody wants to be, oh, did you see that movie? I told you about that movie. I already saw it. I told you about that movie. I went to this beach. I used to do this to Andrea. I went to this beach. Andrea, you ever been to this beach? I, I, I told you that. I, I told you that beach. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. <laughs> We're all guilty. What's the problem? Dude, I found this nice Italian restaurant. That's the one I told you about. No. 
No, it's not. What's the problem? The flesh profits nothing. This is just about that statement. You ready? The flesh profits nothing. In other words, you're going to get nothing out of it. This is just about the most offensive statements of the human flesh that the human flesh can ever hear. What do you mean I'm not profit? I got to get at least something. I got to get one. I got to get zero point zero one percent. Something to do with sanctification. No, you don't. Then I don't want it. This is just about the most offensive statement the human flesh can ever hear. The very nature of human flesh is that it receives credit, a la creature credit in Romans 1. So I was just sharing. Um, I'm just going to share now. I had a lengthy conversation with someone about a month ago, maybe a month and a half, on the topic of salvation by Christ alone. This person had, has been a lifelong Christian. And because of our certain family ties, let's say, we share a common relative that is currently an unbeliever. Now, don't go try to figure out who it is. <laughs> listen. Now, this person I was speaking with continued to say that they were telling this other, this lost person, that they needed to be better so that they could go to heaven. They needed to, they needed to clean up their life. And I kept stopping the conversation. And this was about an hour and a half conversation. I kept stopping the conversation dead in its tracks and saying things like, well, it's not about being better or good enough to get into heaven. It's about accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this person, this lifelong Christian, who's older than me by several years, had a confused look on their face. And ultimately, though the conversation remained civil, it became quite apparent to me that I was dealing with someone's flesh. You see, they became increasingly agitated with each time I gave them the unadulterated gospel truth. And let me remind you that this so-called Christian, someone who has been practicing religion pretty much their entire life, um, this is who they were. They were a... I guess a representative of Christianity. And all I could think about was, why is what I'm saying so offensive to this person when what I'm saying is purely grace and truth? Why would that be offensive to this person who's supposedly a, a brother or sister of mine? And as I've thought about the exchange over the past month or so, it's become abundantly clear that this person was offended because of the statement that Jesus made. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. That was the problem. I was dealing with someone's flesh who actually believes that the flesh is involved, even in salvation. And this is what they were telling this common relative of ours. And I'm saying, no, don't do that. You're going to put them on a treadmill. It's not gonna, that's not salvation. That's not the salvation message at all. You tell them to clean up their act, but they're an addict. So what? All the more. You don't tell them to try to clean up their act. Let God deal with that stuff. That's not going to get them to heaven by being less of an addict or less, I don't know, poisonous or venomous in their speech because they're miserable or something. That's not the point. The flesh profits nothing, though. And this is just about the most offensive statement the human flesh can ever hear. You see, this is why this person I was speaking with was so offended. I was the one standing before them trying to rob their own flesh of its profit in giving life to a dead corpse. Because that's what they were suggesting. You can give life to your own dead corpse by being good, or cleaning up your life. And I was robbing their flesh of that system of thinking. I was the one who was suggesting we present our common relative with grace, not works. And so I was, since I was the one who presented or represented truth, I was the one who needed to be quieted. And 
by the way, just so you know how the story ends, I suggested that our common relatives speak with someone in our congregation, this congregation, that has gone through similar low points in their life. And you know what? This person I was speaking with all but said in their response, over my dead body. What? In other words, this person isn't truly interested in the truth or spreading it. For it is quite possible that they are like the many so-called disciples that Jesus referred to when he said in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning these things. So in the case of my situation from a month ago, I have since reached out. Now this is how diligent I've tried to be in this situation because I love everybody involved in the, in the conversation. I have since reached out several times with a variety of different angles into Holy Scripture on the topic of salvation by grace, not works. And you know what? I've gotten no responses back. Not even a thank you. Not even a, I got it, I'll look at it. Nothing. Now, if I sent them a picture of my dog, they might go, oh, I'm cute. I'm not kidding you. I send them truth from a heart of gold, from pure love. Nothing. And for the record, if you knew the proximity of this person to my life, you'd be astounded at this. You'd say, that's insulting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I at least deserve a response, a thank you, I'll look at it, or something, right? Nothing. Not that it matters specifically. It just goes to show how powerful the human flesh is. The suggestion that I refused to swallow was simple. I refused to accept this person's proposition to our common relative that this other person could come to Jesus or get to God or make it to heaven through exertion of the human flesh. I refused it, flat out, said no way. That's not what the Bible says. This is something that Jesus spoke directly to in this passage. Verse 65. He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's right. Human exertion is not going to overrun the will of the Father. Unless God the Father draws him, you're not coming. If you've not been drawn into the fold, you're not in the fold. Up here on the board, and I'll get to pick my spot to close here. Breaking fleshly cords. Jesus broke the flesh's desire to, quote, profit by stating that unless the Father draws a person, they are not saved, no matter how their flesh exerts itself. No matter how much a person tries to clean up their act or tries to be good to get into heaven. Therefore, with broken flesh, many withdrew, providing their lack of faith being, or proving their lack of faith being unsaved. You see what happened? They wanted something from Jesus, they liked the free stuff, but they wanted some credit. Who can understand these things? What do you mean, the free gift of salvation? What do you mean by grace and truth? And he said, yeah, there's no fleshliness in this pursuit, no matter how hard you try. And so they took off. Look at verse 666. Nice number, huh? As a result of this, many of his disciples, what? Withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many of his disciples took off, and I told you this at the start of class, that has some finality to it, which really is establishing that they were, they were apostates. They were in the faith for a while, and then they left, proving that they were never saved. So that was the backdrop of where we left off back in April this year. We had spent some time in John 6, and it has become one of my favorite passages for all the simple fact, all the simple fact that we can all relate to it to such a great degree in our own time and even our geographic location. We have some pretty strong religious uh, institutions up here in the Northeast. And uh, as far as I can tell, as far as I know, their doctrines are corrupt. 
horribly corrupt. And by the grace and mercy of God, some of them are so ignorant about their own religion that they don't even know about these doctrines. And that's actually by the grace of God. Of course, this is when Jesus capitalized on the moment. Look at verse 667. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And of course, this is when we receive Peter's famous response. 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as family, to break bread, the very bread of life, to be sustained by it, Father. Thank you so much for this church on a hill, for this ability to fellowship and peace and quiet for a time. For we know outside these four walls is a war. So we thank you for preparing us the way you prepared your apostles. We thank you for the encouragement we've received by being able to relate to them firsthand. Special prayers go out to those in this congregation that haven't been able to be here this morning because of legitimate reasons. And of course, prayers go out to each one of us as we take the gospel of your son to a world that is dying. Father, we pray for traveling mercies as we do these things. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.